0: Hey folks, welcome back. This is Elliot with the Poor Prols Almanac. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us on Patreon if you'd like to help us cover the costs of hosting the podcasts. We don't offer any knowledge content related benefits to our Patreons in terms of limited access or anything like that right now. Knowledge is for everyone. And if we get more money than we need, we'll be donating it to good causes and keep you in the loop on that. Thank you to our incredible patrons on Patreon, Elizabeth C., John R., Kenneth H., Eric G., Ember L., Little Fox, Lucas G., JaredBear205, MJ Wallace, and Sam G. You guys are all amazing, and we wouldn't be as motivated to keep working on this project without y'all, so thank you very much. We've also started a new mini series focused on peripheral stuff for our Patreon folks that will be tied around some subject areas correlated to the core content of this podcast. So we'll be talking about things like cottagecore and Joel Salatin to radioactive pigs and lost indigenous crops and much, much more. If that sounds interesting to you, for $2, you'll get some episodes like that, and we'll be able to support this podcast for you guys. Here's a quick taste of it. Uh, By 2025, water scarcity is going to be pretty prevalent uh, across the world. And it's not that we can't find water. It's that the water that we're able to use is going to be less available. It's going to be harder to get. Yeah,
1: clean water that hasn't been destroyed by people. I know, at least in a couple of the episodes that we've done, I've brought up some of the uh, aquifers underground that have been pretty much tapped dry things that had been
0: 21 out of 37 of the aquifers are like being depleted like right now
1: yeah and they said to fill a lot of them up would take like 5000 years 10000 years so like it's not like a oh if we just drill less for a couple of years things will kind of get back to normal right. uh, we we've done some pretty irreparable damage in terms of uh water that's been stored underground
0: Hopefully you enjoyed that, and if so, head on over to the Patreon, and for $2, you can get access to all of it. We'll likely be adding to it once a week, so if you enjoy it, it breaks down to about 50 cents a Patreon episode a month, not including the increasing backlog of content, while also getting the main show that you're listening to now for free. Not a bad deal, right? So... Clearly, we do enjoy making this content, and for our traditional episodes, there's not an insignificant amount of work that goes into each episode, as evidenced by the sources listed in each episode, so any support we can get to offset our actual costs, we fully and wholeheartedly appreciate. Based on 20 hours a week into each episode and researching, writing, recording, editing, we're into the show, not including the Patreon content, over 400 hours. So yeah, We've put some time into this project, plus the cost of hosting and equipment, so if you can give us some support, we do fully appreciate it. Thank you in advance. And if this is your first episode, we highly, highly recommend going back to the first episode of this mini series at the very least, and catching up, since each episode springboards off the previous content. One of the things
1: uh, I want to mention is that we did recently donate some money for the holidays to Indigenous Regeneration. They're a nonprofit out in the Southwest. That focuses on reintroducing indigenous farming practices, indigenous food systems into Native American locations across that region. So it's a pretty cool project, and it's obviously very in line with what we've been talking about and doing. So that seems like a really good place to start for us. For those folks that have donated money, thank you so much for allowing us to be able to support that organization. In terms of this episode, so the entire miniseries has been focused around how we can rebuild the world around us, and what examples and theories we can use to make a more equitable world that incorporates an ecological framework for sustainable civilizations. These last two episodes that we're doing right now, uh, this one and the next one talking about the Irish Civil War, are circling back around to the beginning of that process, the collapse itself. We didn't want to fetishize collapse, this isn't some gloom and doom porn for people that envision some weird dystopic world. So we've shied away from the subject up to this point. However, the type of collapse will very much impact the resources available and the role of the state and how we can rebuild. And with that, we wanted to focus on two scenarios, one being a low-grade civil war condition and the worst being an outright civil war. What we aren't doing is talking about what it would look like in terms of potential groups involved or specific areas of the country or anything like that. We're going to be looking at more of the big picture scenario of what it looks like, taking some models from different areas and how that kind of would look using the framework of what the United States is today. While history can be a guide, it frequently doesn't ever actually repeat itself, but we rather see silhouettes of the past play out in real time, and that's where we're going to focus our energies. We're starting with a worst case scenario here because I do want to end the miniseries on a more positive note. So we're going to look at the civil war in Syria as a model of what we could possibly expect here. Content warning, some of this is graphic, and for some folks, this might be pretty hard to stomach. So I'm not saying this is what's going to happen, and everything right now, actually when this episode was pretty much drafted up, was before the election, and you know, I think some people's nerves have been quelled quite a bit with the results of the election. However, I don't think we're really out of the woods yet. But that said, this is still something to keep in mind, and as we uh, look at the history of Syria and why they are where they are, there's some very eerie parallels that I think we need to really pay attention to. Because this episode is very knowledge-dense, we will have an extensive works cited collection in the episode description. Hopefully you'll find this episode informative and not too frightening. If you're from America, you probably didn't get a very good history lesson on anything outside of the United States and England. So I want to give a very brief rundown on the history of Syria. And I'm going to focus primarily on areas that relate to this conversation. And even then, it has to be really condensed down because the history of Syria is very, very complex with a lot of outside players, a lot of uh, fractured groups, and a lot of it overlaps with different countries in terms of those fractured groups to really complicate things even further. If you are a really big history buff, You might be thinking, I've missed some really important background on Syria and the things that are important about its history. But to really focus on the things that help frame up this conversation, uh, without this turning into a whole series just about Syria, we really had to pare it down. What that means is that we're looking at Syria as a model for what we could see in the United States, primarily in terms of the roles of economy, agriculture, politics, and religion. You know, small stuff. (laughs) Syria has historically been a sanctuary for little groups of peoples whose differences from one another were defined in religious or ethnic terms. Several of these communities were leftovers from previous invasions or migrations. During most of the last five centuries, what is today Syria was part of the Ottoman Empire. Groups of Orthodox, Catholic, and other Christians, Alawis, Ismailis, and other sorts of Shia Muslims Yazidis, Kurds, Jews, and Druze lived in enclaves and in neighborhoods in the various cities and towns alongside Muslim Arabs. So you probably heard of a couple of those. But chances are, unless you are curious of this region, you haven't heard of all of them. And from the I guess the European American mentality, a lot of these things are pretty much the same thing, while we might see things in terms of race and religion as some really vague concept like either you're christian or you're even in like I, I couldn't tell you the difference between protestant and all these other uh versions like you believe in jesus okay so you're christian and i know they're not the same but i don't know what the differences is and i don't think a lot of people do it's either you're like christian jewish or something else
0: I, I I guess you would, it would be hard to tell the difference, you godless heathen.
1: Yeah. I mean, my Um, parents weren't religious. So (laughs) I,
0: mine were, but, um, it didn't really catch for me, I guess. But I guess to compare this to where we live, Syria is a melting pot of ethnicities and different people, just like the United States is. So I guess that's one parallel that we can point out uh, in this conversation. Yeah, I
1: mean, my point would be that in this conversation of these different religious groups, while to us they might seem kind of like these very slight factional differences, to them it's much what seems to us as like this very beige, like slightly different shades of beige are to them the way we see things like uh, race.
0: We'll call it black and white. Yeah.
1: Black and white. We'll go with that. So so you have that. And then to mix things up and make things even more complicated, that this region was very heavily colonized over the 20th century. Until the middle of the 20th century, in fact, Syria had been under the thumb of foreign rule, most recently the French, whose impact lingers today. So not only does it have a complicated local history and tapestry of different ethnic and religious groups, but then you've got the, the ghosts of imperialism kind of lingering over the history and essentially the the borders of the country were uh, framed out by outsiders. So it's, you know, it's just a a messy situation uh, without even getting into the actual messy situation.
0: Right. So diverse population within the country's borders and then outside influence. Um, And this is, you know,
1: abstract borders that don't really mean anything. Right.
0: To the people who live there. Yeah. So the lines on the map don't really they're not congruent with the people who live there and how they see their living space
1: yeah so like you know a really quick example if you're a millennial is yugoslavia like what happened to yugoslavia find it on a map yeah it's go- like you know it balkanized uh, all of the ethnic groups and religious groups uh, essentially mm-hmm. divided up the country because it was just this random assortment of things shoved into one arbitrary line so so you've already got that going for them and that's obviously a challenge to overcome So let's get in a little bit deeper on some of this, the specifics of these folks and kind of how politics and imperialism and economics have kind of played there to make a really unique fuck show. So the majority of those who became Syrians as the nation became defined by its borders were Arab speaking Sunni Muslims. Since the road to worldly success was throughout the Arabic speaking army or bureaucracy, Syrians like the inhabitants of empires throughout Asia found conversion to Islam and becoming Arabic-speaking, if they were not already members of this community, attractive. The earliest estimates we know suggest that between 7 or 8 in 10 Syrians saw themselves as Muslim Arab, essentially the equivalent of, like, I guess, Christian in the United States, and under the growing influence of nationalism, saw being a Muslim Arab as the very definition of Syrian identity. So I, I think that's really important to keep kind of in the back of your head as we talk about these nuances that kind of all fall under this very big umbrella that uh, go on to complicate things as the history evolves.
0: Sounds like the seeds in nationalism.
1: Yeah. What was unusual about Syria was that the other two or three intense Syrians did not feel the same way. As in Ottoman times, they continued to live in the countryside and in quarters in most of the cities and towns of the country. Nationalists took this diversity as a primary cause of weakness and adopted as their primary task integrating the population into a single political and social structure. But the nationalists were deeply split on this whole conversation of whether or not you could homogenize the culture. The major Islamic movement, the Muslim Brotherhood, which you've probably heard of before, argued and fought for the idea that the nation must be Arab Sunni, or quote-unquote orthodox Muslim. Minorities had no place except in the traditional and Ottoman sense of quote-unquote protected minorities. The more conservative, affluent, and westernized nationalists believed that nationhood had to be built not on a religious but on a territorial base. That is, single-state nationalism was the focus of Syria's statehood, much of which came from the French influence, who were major players in the formation of the Syrian state after the First World War and the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. They did a lot of other awful stuff that marred the nation to this day, but I'm going to kind of ignore that for the time being. It's not that important for this conversation. That doesn't mean it's not important. It just we only have about an hour, and I don't want to spend it all just talking about the French. Who does? No one does. The program proposed by these nationalists, however, did not lead to success, and its failure opened the way for a redefinition of nationalism as pan-Arab or folk nationalism. As it was codified by the Ba'ath party, it required that Syria be considered not a separate nation state, but a part of the whole Arab world and be domestically organized as a unified, secular, and at least partly westernized state. So what I want to think about in that conversation is the fact that you've got two dominant strains of very similar populations, and essentially one is um, globalized and sees things through National identity uh, that is strictly defined by national origin, while the other one identifies national identity by non-national things such as religion. And again, go back to I guess that conversation about the United States and how we define what it means to be American. And you you do have two different strains of uh, nationalism, right? I,
0: I think so. I think so. Yeah, sure. There's the people who. You're born here, you're an American, and there are people who think that you have to be Anglo-Saxon, Christian, white in order to be, you know, considered truly American because they're the people who ask, where, where are you from when you're not white? Yeah. You can tell them you're from here, but they, then they ask, you know, where's your family where from? Where you really from. Right.
1: Yeah, so I think those two streams uh, exist here as well, and I think they're kind of the, uh, the, the dominant culture for the most part. Yeah, I, I, let's leave it at that for now, I guess. Um,
0: well, I just want to take a look at this and say that their approach to nationalism, these guys clearly have never heard of complex, diverse systems because you can't make it all the same and have expected to work out. Like we've been preaching that the whole time. So maybe don't go try to homogenize populations of your country. It's not really that cool.
1: Yeah. It's one thing to agree on, like, you know, understanding of what a society should look like, but not in terms of like religious or ethnic or culture or any of those other things it's or, more any, like,
0: or any reason how about everybody love everybody
1: yeah well i mean like economically speaking and politically speaking like you can have a common understanding of the role of religion and state which is uh, something that we're going to talk about in a minute that is a, a big problem and
0: more federal holidays <laughs> yes i think we need more i think we need to recognize like way more
1: yeah so this was a this whole conversation about how to nationalize or create a national identity for Syria is particularly difficult because you have these two different cultures and the fact that it is also predominantly Muslim. As a result of the French rule and later as a result of domestic turbulence and foreign interference, they regarded the members of minority communities, particularly the Jewish community, as actual or potential turncoats. As an answer to the perceived weakness of Syrian statehood and the disorder of the Syrian political life, that the first Assad regime was established in 1970 by Hafez al-Assad, the father of the current leader. The Assad family came from the Alawi minority, which includes about one in eight Syrians and about a quarter of a million people in both Lebanon and Turkey. Like the Jews, the Alawis consider themselves the quote-unquote chosen people, but they are regarded by Orthodox Muslims as heretics. Under Ottoman pluralism, this didn't really matter that much, But as Syrians struggled for a sense of identity and came to suspect social difference, while this was going on, an international reorganization was taking place in the Middle East. And as usual, you know who to blame for that. It was the United States.
0: Proxy war.
1: So as a result of Israeli occupation of formerly Palestinian lands, half a million Palestinians took refuge in Syria starting in the 40s, but continuing and increasing in the 60s. They were followed by more than 100,000 Lebanese who fled the war between Israel and Lebanon in the 70s and 80s. Two decades later, upwards of 2 million Iraqis fled during the American attack and occupation of their country, and about 1 million of them, roughly half of them Christians, went to Syria. So what's one thing we know about when you take a very, I guess, touch-and-go system and then you throw a whole bunch of shit in it?
0: Uh, I believe that's what they call when shit hits the fan. Yeah. And things, just, things usually go from bad to worse. Yeah. Um, the people that are coming in, are they're, they're displaced, they have no homes, and the country doesn't like them strictly based on their religion, let alone the fact that they're outsiders at this point.
1: Yeah. So, all of this, obviously, you were taught in high school history, right? This sounds super familiar. Right. Yeah. You remember when America y- decided y- to make Israel? Yeah. And- Desert
0: Storm, right?
1: Yeah. And we're, well, <laughs> when. <we're- laughs> When we went into, uh, we decided Israel should exist, and then we pushed a bunch of people off their lands, and we said, what What could go wrong? They're just going to stay over there. And uh, obviously, a um, lot of bad the, things happened.
0: The non-fertile side of the banks of the river.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: Unbelievable.
1: Yeah. It, now you've got a, a country that was looking for an identity because colonists from France fucked it up, and then the United States came over and made a new neighbor who fucked everything else up in the region. And essentially, a whole new pecking order was created of countries in dominance. And to do that required a couple wars and throw in the fact that this is in the midst of the Cold War and you've got some proxy wars going on. So like I said, this is super complicated. And this is just kind of scratching the surface. So hopefully we're not losing you at this point, because we're getting to the good stuff. And I think this is going to be a really important conversation for us to continue having. With all this in mind, in 1970, in the midst of this international crisis, while the nation also searched for an identity, Hafez al-Assad, the secular nationalist Ba'ath party, was a natural choice. It offered, or seemed to offer, the means to point towards a solution to the disunity of Syrian politics. He embraced that eagerly, and eventually became its leader. Consequently, to understand Syrian affairs, we need to focus on this party. The Ba'ath party began with two students, and I'm gonna pronounce their names wrong, Michel Aflac and Salah Abitar, who studied in France of all countries, with the goals of destroying, in quote, French oppression, Syrian backwardness, a political class unable to measure up to the challenge of the times. End quote. Above all, disunity had to be overcome. The answer was to try to bridge the gaps between rich and poor through a modified version of socialism, and between Muslims and minorities through a modified concept of islam islam in their view needed to be considered politically not as a religion but as a manifestation of the arab nation and i want to say that again islam in their view needed to be considered politically not as a religion but as a manifestation of the arab nation meaning the arab nation and the arab identity and i want to think about how that we think about that in terms of us being a christian nation Thus, the society they wished to create, they proclaimed, should be both modern liberal societies, secular and defined by a culture of Arabism, overriding the traditional concepts of ethnicity. In short, what they sought was the very antithesis of the objectives of the already strong and growing Muslim Brotherhood. Hafez, in a stroke of luck, genius, skill, blind stupidity, or just circumstance, ended up being the loudest military leader standing after a series of tumultuous years, and was sworn in as president in 1971. His survival, much less his victory, was nearly a miracle, but he had not managed to solve the fundamental problem of Syrian ethnicity and particularly the role of Islam in society. This problem, which so tragically and bitterly evident in Syria today, found an early expression in the writing of the new constitution in 1973. The previous constitutions going back to French colonial times had specified that a Muslim should hold the presidency. Despite his dedication to secular politics, Hafez al-Assad made two attempts to cater to Muslim opinion. In the first, he got the clause in the former constitutions conditioning the presidential office to a Muslim replaced by a redefinition of Islam of sorts. Islam, the new language stressed, in quote, is a religion of love, progress, and social justice, of equality for all. End quote. Then, in the second move, he arranged for a respected Islamic jurisconsult to issue a finding, what the Arabic language calls a fatwa, which was blasted around Western media at the height of the war on terror, that Alawis were really Shia Muslims rather than heretics. This was not merely an abstract bit of theology as heretics alawis were outlaws who could be legally and meritoriously killed and obviously that would have been a problem for him now we've got kind of the framework of what the modern syrian world was based on and it comes down to this very ambiguous uh identity that surrounds this idea of muslim culture being the homogenous identity of what it means to be syrian that their religiousness was almost the religious par- portion of it is almost taken out of the religiousness of what it means for that identity.
0: Yeah, that that's so. Like, I want to
1: like think about like what when we say like we're a Christian nation. Like, the people that say we're a Christian nation, how many of them go to church? Like, fucking none of them.
0: Right, but still that I- ideology pervades through in a lot of things. Like whether you're Christian or not, on our dollar bill it says "In God We Trust." Yeah. Like,
1: so when we say like we're a Christian nation to a population where I think like fifteen percent go to church but those are but thirty percent are people or whatever. Say thirty percent the Trump supporters just for just to make it easy. If fifteen percent of them are going to church, but thirty percent say we are a Christian nation, that God is first and all this other stuff. What are
0: they identifying with?
1: Yeah, like that that's what I'm I think is really important about this conversation and how they develop that abstract understanding of what a national identity is
0: and i guess that would come down to i mean we made the joke earlier about you know we need to recognize more holidays but all of those people I, I shouldn't say all of those people but we'll say most of the people who aren't going to church who do support trump or do support anybody they're still celebrating christmas they're still celebrating our uh, our um observing easter and all the christian holidays
1: yeah like uh, the term i use and uh, it's kind of a dick term, but I, I like it, is American exceptionalism. And I mean, like, exception, like, as in an exception. To a rule. Yeah. yeah. So, like, the American exceptionalism of, like, Christian Americans who don't have to do any of the stuff that is Christian.
0: And still but, identify.
1: But identify and also, not just identify themselves, but identify what it means to live on this plot of land that we call the United States of America. And that's dangerous. That's a super dangerous because... In this homogenization and detaching the non-religious aspects of their religion in a way that it is no, now a part of our government and are now a part of our politics and how we have these conversations, it, it's like the equivalent of when you're a kid and you say, don't touch me, and somebody comes up an inch from your face and says, I'm not touching you. It, that's what they're doing by inserting these different religious functions within our government.
0: I don't even know what happens if you go to court and they try to swear you went on a Bible and you say you don't want to. Like, do they just like they not, make you swear on something. They make you swear on something. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's, that's so weird to me. But yeah. we're, as a Christian nation, that's something that has to be done to make people feel better. Yeah. I mean,
1: like, imagine if a president refused to like, I don't know, get sworn in on the Bible. Or like, uh, I think somebody did. did I, don't,
0: a, I don't know. I would do it on like a stack of Chuck E. Cheese tickets or something.
1: <laughs> or like, not even just that, but like- while we don't require religion, and even if our politicians are religious, like look at Obama, like he was a, obviously I have problems with him, but like he, how many times was he questioned for his actual religiousness because of whatever?
0: Right. Somebody heard that one one time he was a Muslim.
1: Yeah, like, and that's what's I think uh, that's where the framework for the beginning of why there's so many similarities between us and Syria. And we haven't even gotten into the economics that are really important in this conversation because it, it gets pretty scary when you start looking at how some of these things compare. And uh, I think we're going to jump into it. So to circle back to what we were saying about this um, role of Hafez al-Assad, making it so that the, the sect of Muslim that he was that wasn't even recognized as being Muslim not only became a part of being Muslim, but also really made it ambiguous amorphous sense of what it meant to be Muslim in this region, which was good for the sense of building solidarity within the borders. But it also framed up some of the problems that they continued to have.
0: So this uh, fatwa, this declaration that was made kind of goes against the Ethnic issues that are in place in the country, basically. Yeah. He, uh, for lack of a better explanation for what's going on here. He basically said, Your enemy is no longer your enemy, they're your brother now, and people didn't really vibe with that.
1: Yeah, and part of it is that they there's this ceremony that they had that was like obviously like a paid ceremony. That's like if if Trump had somebody come, like some priest be like, You're even though we don't believe in divorce and extramarital affairs. You're okay. You're cool. Like, I, I say you're cool. Like, everyone be like, yeah, okay. The only people that are going to believe that are the people that believed him or liked him before. Nobody is going to change their mind based on that decision. There's a very political activity that was for politicking and not actually changing anyone's perceived understanding of the role of Alawis within the, uh, the community.
0: Where else do you see people in power placating to the masses? Never heard of it. Okay, moving on. Yeah.
1: So <laughs> So needless to say, the Muslim Brotherhood was furious. Riots broke out around the country, particularly in the city of Hama. For some years, Assad managed to contain the discontent, partly by granting subsidies on food and partly by curbing the already hated political police. But the fundamental issue was not resolved. Muslim brothers and other disaffected groups organized terrorist attacks on the government and on Assad's inner circle, killing some of his close collaborators and exploding car bombs at installations, including even the office of the Prime Minister and the headquarters of the Air Force. In 1982, a massive civil war broke out as the state army rolled tanks into the stronghold of the right-wing terrorist group, the Muslim Brotherhood, armed heavily and destroying acres of the city of Hama. This snowballed as guerrilla leaders of different right-wing factions called for an uprising against the state, itching with the opportunity to seize power. The factions were endless. City versus countryside. Various factions of radical religious sects. Similar religious sects that just had different leaders. 10,000 people died in the siege. However, Hafez did not abandon the city after the event, but instead... Hafez al-Assad ordered the rubble cleared away, built new highways, constructed new schools and hospitals, opened new parks, and even, in a wholly unexpected conciliatory gesture, erected two huge new mosques. He thus made it evident what had been his philosophy of government since he had took power: help the Syrian people to live better, provided only that they did not challenge his rule. Obviously, the role of foreign countries such as the United States became clear in funding and training many of these right-wing organizations. But again, for the purposes of this project, I don't want to dive into that piece. Before we get into Bashar al-Assad, I do want to kind of talk about this and how we've seen this happen in the United States. Absolutely. Even just talking about this past week, I think yesterday I saw in the news, and this is December 19th, that Trump had to have pretty much all of his... Uh, access to outside worlds taken away because he was arguing that he needed to give the people, uh, working class people, $2,000 a month. And that would go against, like, the Republican position right now. And, like, challenging the fact that the bill on the floor right now is complete fucking Dead shit. Dead the water, yeah. Yeah. So, like, this idea of placating people to consolidate power. While it's a net good for those people and uh, in this region that might have been the best thing at that time. If you looked at all scenarios, what what was the best outcome? that probably was it. I'm not going to disagree with it. However, it sets a precedent and that's important to consider. Again, like we were just talking about with like, I don't, were we recording when we talked about the Republicans? No. No. Um, So like right before we recorded, we were talking about the recent uh, support Trump got from Republicans to nullify the results of the election. It was like 128 or whatever it is. Uh, The number is not important. The point is that they did this thing that was in direct direct opposition to the uh, dire, to democracy, our democratic system. Yeah. yeah, and sure, it's it it probably is not going to go anywhere. And like Trump will probably pull, try to pull some other shit before this election actually officially ends with Joe Biden being sworn in, and he might be successful. We don't know at this point, but the point is, even if he isn't successful and Joe Biden takes the presidency, the fact is. You have a hundred and twenty whatever Republicans who have now denounced democracy. Democracy is okay for them only when they get what they want, and the fact that, that precedent has been set is dangerous. And I think that's very similar to what he did. Whereas this idea of we're gonna make people happy that are protesting and causing chaos in the streets, and we're gonna do what we can to give them enough to say. Continue to support us, and obviously these examples aren't really apples to apples. But the the important thing to keep in mind, at least I think, is that the framework of this uh, mentality of I want to be in power, and as long as I placate you, you don't question my boundless power.
0: Right. Uh, What I'm seeing here that stands out to me is I'm seeing the state versus the people versus the people versus the people, and. I think that kind of mirrors what we're seeing today where w- Trump supporter, uh, blue red blue, it doesn't matter what people's affiliation are, if you ask a majority of people, they don't trust the government. Yeah. So that means it's the state versus those people and those people are going up against, you know, the state and the people they disagree with. And that's yeah. exactly what's happening here today and that's what was happening in Syria um you know after the the state rolled through and destroyed the city and then they the, they cleared everything up, erected new highways and parks for everybody, gave them new mosques, and said, you know, you guys can have all this stuff, but... Don't piss us off. Right.
1: Yeah, and like, okay, so this might seem super complicated when we're talking about all these different groups you don't know, but if we were to play this back in the United States, you know, again, let's look at um, Portland, which we were talking about right before we started recording this. We
0: got to start recording all this shit.
1: Yeah, we were just like trying to make sure we're on the same page and we end up talking about all this stuff and then I can never remember what we recorded. <laughs> um, but when we were talking about Portland and like, you know, what's happening is only happening in a, a couple blocks. And if you're really interested in it and you're not familiar, uh, I'm surprised you're listening to us. But if you are, go follow Robert Evans on Twitter and you'll get a, a lesson. He's actually doing a podcast about it. Uh, I'm not sure if he started releasing episodes yet, but it, it's coming um but the point is that if you look at some place like portland which is a small city as it is and then you look at the protests which were just like a couple blocks of that small city you had like many factions of right wingers show up to protest the protesters like and like for the average person like if i talk to my my dad about what's going on he doesn't know who the 3%ers are or patriot front or any of these other organizations and there's like dozens of them that are now sprung up across the country and in some cases they're in the same place and those organizations exist and they don't they they mostly agree with each other on things but there's a reason why they're in different factions and i think as you pour gas on these situations those divisions become more and more clear and we're not at that point yet which is a good thing but that that's kind of how i guess it's when we talk about like imagining this in the united states this is the foundation that we're talking about. And, you know, what we're talking about is, like, with, with Assad, Hafez Assad, the thing is, when he died, it was uh, in 2000. And he would placated these people, but those factions still For three existed. decades. Yeah. Uh, and with, like, despite all of the chaos happening in the region because of the wars going on around them and having to absorb all of the the immigrants that were coming in, the refugees that were coming in with other ethnic and religious backgrounds that further complicated these relationships. And it was gas on the fire, and he he kind of just smothered it as much as he could, obviously to his own gain. In this case, it was, you know, a, a net positive for a lot of those people that it wasn't a full civil war. So now let's switch over to Bashar al-Assad, the one you probably recognize because he looks kind of like a thumb.
0: That's Hefez's son and successor.
1: Yeah, and he's kind of got this weird reputation, uh, and I I haven't really been able to put my thumb. Yeah, I did that. <laughs> um, uh, on why he has this weird reputation as being supported by some leftists and um, hated by others, and I I I don't I don't understand it, but I I think it's probably just a lack of historical knowledge. So we're gonna talk about him a little bit, and then specifically the economic component of Syria of the last 20 years, which is why shit just got so much worse and why he is not a good leader for the country. So the second Bashar al-Assad regime began when Hafez al-Assad died in 2000. Like his father had done after the Battle of Hama, Bashar initially made conciliatory moves to his opponents, including allowing the Muslim Brotherhood to resume political activities and withdrawing most of the Syrian troops that had occupied Strife torn Lebanon. While he legitimized his position through an election, he quickly showed that he was also following his father's authoritarian path. Run your own lives privately and enrich yourselves as you wish, but do not challenge my government. It's here that we really start to see some parallels of where the United States can play out. Like his father, Bashar sought to legitimize his regime through elections, but apparently he never intended and certainly did not find a way satisfactorily to the public and acceptably to his regime to enlarge the political participation. While this has been the focus of most foreign hostility to his regime, it was certainly less important to Syrians than his failure to find any means of bridging the gap between the demands of Islam and the new role of the Alawi community. The lack of political participation, fear of public demands, and severe police measures made the regime appear to be a tyranny. So before we get into the bad stuff, I do want to acknowledge that he did have some positives that he made. And I think this is where that complexity of why some folks do support him is they probably heard about this stuff and not maybe paid less attention to the other stuff.
0: Previous three decades. Yeah. Or the following decade. his father. Yeah. yeah, Following decade from 2000 to 2010. So, and this, this is what
1: particularly reminds me of Trump and, the fact that he will do things if he thinks it will benefit him. And sometimes it actually does benefit people. And that, that can be really dangerous because of the fact that people are so focused on the fact that they got something that they ignore the other shit because they're like, well, you know, who else was going to do that? And that's kind of how we ended up
0: with Trump, I think. A bit um, of sleight of hand.
1: Yeah. Obviously, this country has been like – it's had it's had a rough run at this point. Even with, with uh, his father – you know, trying to manage things the best he could. It wasn't like a fun time. It was obviously a war-torn region that had really never experienced any peace, economic freedom, post, you know, the French colonists, and it really never developed a technological sector. So in social affairs, nearly 90% of Syrian children attended primary or secondary schools, and between 8 and 9 and 10 Syrians had ever achieved literacy. By World Health Organization standards, Syria was well in the middle of the pack, just below what we consider first world nations and above most developing nations. Before Bashar took power, universal healthcare, universal preschool, and universal college and trade education was the standard, something we still don't have here in the United States. Prior to Bashar's neoliberal policy changes, rent control and food price fixing kept most families able to afford food on menial wages without falling into severe debt. Syria's accelerated implementation of, of neoliberal policies in the decade following Bashar al Assad's ascent to power in 2000 benefited the Syrian upper class and foreign investors, particularly from the Gulf monarchies and Turkey, at the expense of the vast majority of Syrians, who are hit by inflation and a rising cost of living. Part of why his father was so successful is that he had implemented all these things, so even if you were shit poor, you still could see a doctor, you could still go to college even if most people weren't educated because there weren't many schools, and you still had like this basic understanding of as long as I work, I can get food. So that kind of went away when Bashar took over. Many scholars argued that widespread economic marginalization and intense socioeconomic grievances eroded the Syrian regime's political base and constituted one of the most important causes of the eruption of the uprising in Syria. More broadly, the 2011 uprisings were rooted in the specific uh, modalities of capitalist production in the Middle East and North Africa. Behind the appearance of decent macroeconomic performance, that is, the amount of GDP growth and things like that that are expected from a developing country, uh, Middle East and North African countries that do have this macroeconomic performance still sometimes appear to suffer from similar underlying economic symptoms that can be traced back decades. These include the development and expansion of particular economic sectors, particularly in services, and a concurrent decline of productive sectors, very low employment rates associated with extremely high rates of skilled migration, for example, brain drain, a rentier state model for managing resources, including non-natural resources, and corruption in the form of clannish oligarchy that in some cases include the military elite, Syria underwent an accelerated implementation of neoliberal policies in the decade after Bashar al-Assad took power in 2000. This process was characterized mainly by extensive privatization, liberalization, and a reduction of subsidies on many goods and services.
0: Oh shit, so we're supposed to be drawing uh, parallels (laughs) from Syria to the U.S., right? When do you think all of this started happening in the United States? Reagan. Reagan. I was going to, yeah, I wasn't, that, that's when the trickle down economics sort of came into play and he basically put that in play in the year 2000 in Syria.
1: Yeah, you know, I posted a meme recently on our, well, not even a meme, it was a tweet that I put up comparing George H.W. Bush's tax policy compared to Joe Biden's tax policy. You know, we've been so focused on identity politics, you know, things like rights for various groups, um, which is not an an important thing. However, the left and the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, even if you want to call them like more than just like fucking a horse and pony show to keep people from outright revolting on the left, George H.W. Bush's uh, corporate tax rate was, I think, 37 percent or 35 percent that he instituted uh, as president. And Joe Biden's pie-in-the-sky tax plan is like 25%, 26%. So George H.W. Bush, like nobody is going to say George Bush was not a right-wing president, had a more progressive tax policy than fucking Joe Biden, who media is convinced is uh, possibly going to be the most progressive president in history. Like how does that fuck... Like that tells you how far... The bar has swung and we haven't seen it because it's happened over decades.
0: Right. That pendulum swing. Yeah. And that's why the parties, I mean, I'm not going to get into it, but that's why the parties don't mean anything. They're strictly there to oppose the other. Yeah.
1: Uh, like, And that's why, like, uh, I'm not even going to go there. you know <laughs> what? i'm it's, not going to touch it. Uh, <laughs>
0: there's plenty more episodes after yeah, this. Don't we, worry we about got it. Got we'll stuff. get there.
1: We still got a decent amount of stuff to cover on this and we're already hitting 50 minutes. So I don't want to go there. Are we going to do
0: our first two-parter?
1: No. Damn it. We're never doing a two-part. Well, we probably will. But, We're going to do a two-part. Um, I I don't think there's quite enough, but we'll see. So yeah, I want to talk about a couple of those terms. So brain drain is the idea that like they educated people, and then those people went to other countries where they could make more money. Using um, their education. Yeah, using their education. So they go to places like the United States and Canada and places like France, that. Germany. France, yeah. Pretty much anywhere that's not there where they can make a good living. And their management's resources were just fucked because instead of caring about sustainability and long-term development, people that had no real investment in these goods and services and materials and all those types of things just got as much as they could out of it and walked away. Like we talked about Rojava last week, and one of the things that they talked about was how they pretty much just fucked over the landscape as hard as they could because it was they didn't care. It was whatever happens to it happens to it. We want to get what we can out of it this year. And now they're having to deal with that mess. So a lot of that stuff was happening. And it also, I think, magnifies the successes of Rojava when you look at some place like Syria and see that it shares a border. And despite that, like, and they have the same population issues and all of those different things, yet it's been a success without a a real government, uh, which is incredible. So... Uh, To get back to Bashar and his great work, his liberalization and privatization policies also represented an instrument with which the new ruler could consolidate his power. Unlike his father, Bashar allowed the World Bank and the IMF to intervene in the process of economic liberalization. In 2005, social market economy was adopted as a new economic strategy at the BOTS party 10th regional conference. In other words, the private sector rather than the state would become a partner and a leader in the process of economic development and in providing employment. The aim was to encourage private accumulation principally through marketization of the economy while the state withdrew from key areas of social welfare provision, aggravating already existing socioeconomic problems. Alongside increasing liberalization and privatization was an increase in informal labor i.e. uber-type shit.
0: Basically, that move is you know taken. We can see that in the state is stepping back and saying, we're going to have these rich, successful people take care of it.
1: Because they know what they're doing or something.
0: And all it is is a way for them to obviously line their own pockets.
1: Yeah, so in stripping these labor rights, in 2003 and 2004, the informal sector employed 48% of the poor in rural areas and 31% of the poor in urban areas. Particularly noteworthy is the fact that more than half of the informal sector workers were below the age of 30, signaling decreasing availability of economic opportunities for Syrian youth during the period of liberalization.
0: I've lived through that parallel.
1: Yeah, I don't know if anyone listening to this hasn't lived through that. If you're
0: under 30, you probably have had, how many jobs have you jumped around to? Yeah, or even mid-30s. Chasing, you know...
1: How many people have had to work two jobs and say, well, maybe next year I can finally get down to one job?
0: Right. Chasing wages.
1: So these, obviously these neoliberal policies largely benefited the Syrian upper class and foreign investors, particularly from the Gulf monarchies in Turkey, at the expense of the vast majority of Syrians who were hit by inflation and the rising cost of living. My first apartment in 2009 was $800 a month for two people, $400 a month each. And I remember thinking I was getting ripped off. That same apartment today is probably $2,400 a month. It's been 11 years. That's normal. During this period, the government also significantly reduced taxes on business sector profits, both for groups and individuals. Tax liberalization measures were accompanied by reductions in subsidies, a hiring freeze in the public sector, and a reduction of the state's role in domestic investment, social security spending, Was considerably reduced by cutbacks to the pension system in the 2000s. Subsidies on key food products, gas, and other energy sources were removed. Price liberalization made many products that are essential in everyday life increasingly unaffordable for low-income families. Land ownership became increasingly concentrated in a small number of hands. Evidence of extreme inequality in the agricultural sector is the fact that three quarters of all the irrigated land was worked by only 28% of Syria's farmers, a privileged group. Meanwhile, another portion of Syria's farmers, 49% of all farmers, worked just 10% of the irrigated land, according to figures from 2008. Neoliberal economics provided the framework which accelerated agriculture into more precarious conditions. Soil depletion from petrofertilizers and chemical agents leading to massive dust bowls and food shortages paired with massive rain shortages, have drained deep aquifers from any water that is accessible, causing a massive collapse in food supplies. We'll come back to this in a few minutes.
0: Yeah, so do you want to draw some more parallels here?
1: I feel like the parallels are too easy at this point. Yeah? You could change the words and the dates, and this could be America.
0: I I think you're right. I wanted to go back to the Social Security spending and talk about how they cut back pensions back in 2000s. You want to talk
1: about? Go ahead.
0: Well, I just think the same thing happened here in the 2000s when pensions sort of went by the wayside and they started putting people in 401 case and then spending their money there.
1: I want to do a prologue on the 401 case scam um, because I did my master's thesis on it. So that's like a uh, very near and dear to my heart. How fucked we got by that. They
0: gambled with our future. Yeah. And, and, then, why, and then they lost all the money.
1: And why they moved pension or they why they got rid of pensions and like the, the accounting uh, repercussions of or decisions that led to where we were yep. and why they had to get rid of pensions. It's a long discussion. What's, I'm very we'll, excited about it. We'll get
0: into that one. He's he's a CPA. He loves this shit. Yeah.
1: So um, first off, like anyone that knows anybody that has any background in farming <sighs> or ag- shit, even if you don't, chances are you've heard that like what one in three dairy farmers are going under and pretty much everyone all small family farmers are gone um so that shouldn't sound any different than here uh the massive dust bowl shouldn't sound any uh unfamiliar we had one of those yeah if you've been listening to the news and we talked about like the water futures but which is equally fucked and like speaks to the fact that they're tapped out of water almost and they know it yeah and they know it and further Soil, if, degradation, if soil degradation, top soil degradation,
0: topsoil is shit.
1: Yeah. And the um, what was I going to say? Oh, so I don't know if you've paid attention at all, but um, they said food futures have like corn and things like that have skyrocketed because of uh, poor harvest because of the fact that they couldn't find labor to pick a lot of it and maintain everything. So like we've got a lot of these same problems going on. We just do a really good job of covering it up or the right people are not paying attention. Or they don't want people to pay attention.
0: They don't want one, people to pay of those attention. One they, they definitely do not want people to pay attention. Yeah, and, they- w-
1: and we're going to come back to this. But, okay. um, uh, so we're going to talk a bit about this further, but like, I've got like, a lot more stuff I want to talk about. <laughs> and we're already at the hour mark. Yeah. So, um, so neoliberal politics and deepening processes of privatization created new monopolies in the hands of relatives and associates of Bashar al-Assad and the regime. Key employment positions in the administration, the government, the military, and security services also served as conduits for patronage. Rami Maklouf, Assad's cousin and the richest man in Syria, represented the mafia-style process of privatization led by the regime. His vast economic empire includes telecommunications, oil and gas, construction, banks, airlines, and retail, among others. In contrast, small and medium-sized businesses which had previously made up more than 99% of all businesses in Syria, were for the most part negatively affected by marketization and economic liberalization throughout the 2000s. Parallels. Yeah. Assad's political rule and economic policies led to unprecedented impoverishment while wealth inequalities continued to increase. Despite GDP growing at an average rate of 4.3% from 2000 to 2010, in real terms, this growth only benefited the small stratum of the economic elite. GDP more than doubled, passing from 28.8 billion in 2005 to around 60 billion in 2010. In 2003 to 2004, spending on the poorest 20% of the population accounted only for 7% of total expenditure, while the wealthiest 20% were the beneficiaries of 45% of total expenditure. In 2007, the percentage of Syrians living below the poverty line was 33%, representing approximately 7 million people, while 30% of Syrians were only just above this level. This represented a large shift from the late 90s, when only 14.3% were recorded as living below the poverty line. Poverty was concentrated particularly in rural areas, with 62% of Syrians impoverished living in rural areas compared to 38% In urban areas as of 2004. Just over half of all Syria's unemployed were located in rural areas.
0: So take a look at uh, employment rates and the redistribution of wealth. The redistribution of wealth during this whole pandemic, and I think you'll see some parallels. (laughs) Yeah.
1: If you thought this was going to be kind of like a a stretch type conversation where it's like, well, some of these things kind of sound similar, hopefully your ears are starting to perk up a little bit because, like, this is what's happening in America um, by any, any data points to the same thing. It might not be as extreme, but we're seeing the same thing happen. And by extreme, I guess I mean standard of living. I think we, probably, we have a better standard of living, but those divisions uh, do exist. And I think and I'm going to cover this right now actually. That kind of worked out really well. So one thing to keep in mind is that when we discuss things like poverty lines, The United States is complicated. The World Bank's official $2 a day poverty estimates for developing economies would place the United States level with or behind a large set of countries, including Russia at 0.1%, the West Bank and Gaza at 0.3%, Jordan at 1.6%, Albania at 1.7%, Urban Argentina at 1.9%, Urban China at 3.5%, and Thailand at 4.1%. Many of these countries are recipients of American foreign aid. However, methodologies for measuring poverty differ widely both within and across countries, so such comparisons and their interpretation demand extreme care. This is a very long and complicated discussion, not really for here, but I do want this in the back of your head when I say that the United States' poverty rate stands around 12% in 2020, and that was before COVID happened. And it's in the United States' interest to artificially deflate that figure. If you're curious about this, we're going to link to a research project on this data that shows the notes. So the United States is not much further above poverty than we like to pretend.
0: Right. We're I, a fr- everybody likes to think we're a first world country, but there are numbers out there where, you know, one in six children go to bed hungry every night on top of very high food waste in the country. So yeah. there's disparate. Um, numbers here thrown around, but we, we've... how do I say this? We're uh. fed
1: what people want us to think, and we're very disillusioned because of the fact that, uh, to challenge, because we have nice and fancy houses or whatever, we have a hard time believing that we're anything but better than the rest of the world. And as somebody that, I have family in Italy and Belgium, and that's where my, my parents are from, Italy, and my and the reason why Syria was so interesting to me is that my dad's grandfather immigrated from, grandfather and grandmother immigrated from Syria, Iran, that area. So, like, this is not family that, like, I don't have any, like, cultural history with this region. But ancestral it, ties. But, yeah, ancestral yeah. ties. So, like, it's really interesting. Um, and it, I feel like it also explains a very, like, communist streak that, <laughs> that exists with them. <laughs> it's in the blood. And, yeah, I think it is. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's really interesting. Um, so, At this point, we've discussed some of the uh, regime guidance, which sounds pretty familiar of what their goals were. And a lot of this was instrumental in leading up to the Civil War, which should be very disconcerting because of the fact that this economic model is essentially the American playbook. And we've seen it broken out on steroids over the past four years. I guess one of the things we don't have to worry about here is you really can't liberalize the economy much more at this point. And further, we don't have to worry about the American military attacking us, or hopefully we don't. I guess we don't have to as an outside agitator, uh, but you know, if you ask the people in Portland, they would disagree with you. To bring this back to, I guess, modern era and really tie this home so we can kind of really dig into this, mm-hmm. uh, throughout the Bush regime of the early 2000s, Syria was entangled in a mix of attacks, both quite literal and economic as well as a massive influxes of refugees directly stemming from American bombings, both within and right outside the Syrian borders, backed by Israel. Obama extended these attacks in the uh, 2010s, or I'm not even sure what they call the 2010s. The 10s? The 10s? That sounds weird. The aughts in the 10s. Yeah, uh, I don't like it.
0: We started a new millennium, baby.
1: Yeah, so uh, anyways, so Ob- <laughs> Obama um, didn't back down from Bush's policies, and keep in mind during the 2010s that we also had this massive drought, which we covered in the Syrian episode, uh, the uh, Rojava episode as well. Um, that essentially destroyed a lot of the food systems. And what's important to know is that Syria's economy was mostly agriculturally based. So these droughts plus these attacks caused widespread struggle and economic collapse. It's likely that part of Al Assad's interest in partnering with the IMF was to essentially buy off the international investor markets to keep the United States war pig at bay, but it didn't work. So compiled with the in- the unhinged war machine called the United States, four years of devastating... <laughs> you like that, didn't you? That's
0: awesome. <laughs> um,
1: so uh, four years... <laughs> I broke you.
0: It's funny. He's dying. It's funny. It's funny.
1: Uh, four years of devastating drought beginning in 2006 caused at least 800,000 farmers to lose their entire livelihood and about 200,000 to simply abandon their lands, according to the Center of Climate and Security. In some areas, all agriculture ceased. In other areas, crop failures reached 75%, and generally as much as 85% of livestock died of thirst or hunger. Hundreds of thousands of serious farmers gave up, abandoning their farms, and fled to the cities and towns in search of almost non-existent jobs and severely short food supplies. Outside observers, including UN experts, estimated that between 2 and 3 million of Syria's 10 million rural inhabitants were reduced to extreme poverty. During the American Dust Bowl of the 1930s, crop failures reached similar proportions, giving some context of what they experienced, which is particularly meaningful when we consider that scientists believe we are barreling towards another dust bowl here in the United States and across the globe, according to the 2019 UN Climate Committee report.
0: Well, that's a horrifying paragraph, all of that.
1: Yeah, I think, I don't think I kept the number when I was writing my notes for this, but I believe they said something like, 40% chance of another dust bowl happening in the next 15 years.
0: Yeah. And that's because of water scarcity and also poor soil management. They didn't join the no-till revolution. Nobody, Nobody's listening to <laughs> the, yeah, and like, the ecologists. Yeah.
1: And like, people are. Like, there are people that are actually like, making those changes.
0: But it's the people at scale. This is for yes. like, the factory farms.
1: Yeah. like That's the biggest problem is that like the people that need to make those changes aren't the ones that are making those changes.
0: Yes. Big problem. Yeah. It's only going to make bigger problems for us. But we'll get there. We'll just keep talking into these microphones.
1: Yeah. So while 11% of the population have historically farmed in Syria as a means of living, 17% do so in the United States. But also, the United States is the largest exporter of produce in the world, which obviously in a system of collapse highlights the likelihood of outside influence should state power collapse. This also reflects the interests of international parties being interested in keeping a strongman of some sort in charge of the country, regardless of human rights violations, as long as the food keeps flowing from the United States' borders. So, like, that kind of goes into, like, while in, in Syria we might be that dickhead that keeps sticking our nose in their business, if collapse were to happen here, if there's a, a, a question of authority of power or anything like that. If the military stopped responding to the president or uh, local districts refused to acknowledge state power, there's going to be international influence because the fact that like there's there's too much at stake across the globe. If the United States uh, not even talking about like our economic power or our military power or any of those things, but focusing just specifically on the fact that we are the largest exporter of food. California. Almonds. Yeah, like California is one of the biggest exporters of food in the world. Right. And Robert Evans talks about that a ton, Mm -hmm. and it could happen here. That's why, despite it seeming impossible for another country to come here, in reality, the second that power is challenged, either they're going to back the power that is a a dictator, or they're going to try to install someone that is. That's the only alternative to allowing our food system to collapse internationally.
0: Right, and that's one thing that I was going to talk about uh, towards the end of the episode.
1: So let's talk about what was the spark of the current civil war in Syria. During this massive famine amidst a water shortage, tens of thousands of frightened, angry, hungry, and impoverished former farmers were jammed into Syria's towns and cities. The spark that was struck on March fifteenth, 2011, when a relatively small group gathered in the southwestern town of Daraa to protest against government failure to help them. Instead of meeting with the protesters and at least hearing their complaints, the government saw them as subversives. The lesson of Hama, in that only when order was restored did the Muslim Brotherhood stop fighting a direct war against the state, must have been at the front of the mind of every member of the Assad regime. Compromise could only come after order was assured. So Bashar followed the lead of his father, he ordered a crackdown, and the army, long frustrated by inaction and humiliated by successive defeats in confrontation with Israel, responded violently. Its actions backfired. Riots broke out across the country. As they did, the government attempted to quell them with military force. It failed. So, during the next two years, what had begun as a food and water issue gradually turned into a political and religious cause. The insurgents were split into mutually hostile groups. This has made them impossible to defeat and very difficult to engage in negotiations. The guerrilla groups fought against each other for territory, money, weapons, access to smuggling routes, leadership, old ethnic hatreds, and more. The war at this point has reached a stalemate in which neither side, regardless of promise or provision of weapons and money by outside powers, is likely to prevail. There's too many factions is what it comes down to. In the United States, we see this somewhat happening already as various white nationalist groups, all with slightly different understandings of the role of identity in state and economy, exist as each tries to gain a larger following. During the writing of this episode, we can see these splinterings continue. When I had started writing this, it was during the week that the 3%ers attempted to kidnap the governor of Michigan with plans to kill police in order to start a war against the state. Despite the 3%ers being in support of police and the president, highlights the fact that these groups are likely to splinter off into different sects as they grow larger. Starting with the alt-right, we can see this continuing splintering of right-wing groups into various militias and movements. As of 2019, there are over 1,000 different hate groups identified by the Southern Poverty Law Center. While very little data exists on how many individuals are associated with these different hate groups, the only study I could find of any use came from an essay titled. Hateful Sirens, Who Hears Their Song? An Examination of Student Attitudes Towards Hate Groups and Affiliation Potential by Carolyn Turpin Petrosino. In her paper, she focuses on where hate groups recruit, and in her study of a college population, she comes to the conclusion that 9,000 per million college students subscribe to hate group ideology. For context, that's nine-tenths of one percent. It doesn't sound like much, right? It's going to be an important figure in a few minutes especially considering how we view college-educated folks less likely to fall into hate groups. Now, making things vastly more complicated in the United States is simply its landmass. It is 52 times larger, with roughly 15 times the population of Syria, with most of the population proportioned in the Northeast and California. This mix of large population, clusters scattered across a larger landscape, and the risks of outsider interference should a civil war erupt, reflects the tinder already in place for a cataclysmic change here. And we'll talk about this shortly, but I want to jump into the role of religion in Syria's war, particularly with the influx of refugees who vastly changed the landscape of the country. Again, keep that nine-tenths of a percent figure in the back of your head. In Syria, while many Muslims found the Assad regime acceptable and maybe even joined its senior ranks, others saw its Alawi and Christian affiliations and even its secularism and openness to Muslim participation, insupportable. What happened is that the aims of the two broad groups, the Syrians and the foreigners, have grown apart in a way similar to the split that occurred in Arab nationalism. The Syrians focus on Syria and seek the overthrow of the Assad regime much as their fathers and grandfathers focused on the task of getting the French out of their country. Their nationalism is single country oriented the foreign jihadists, like the more recent nationalists, put their emphasis on a larger than Syria range. For them, it is a folk nationalism, not only to the Arab world, but also to the wider world of Islam, affecting a billion people across the globe. What they seek is a restored Islamic world, or a new caliphate. We can see this play out in the United States in unique terms that many on the left have struggled to articulate. Nationalism that reinforces racism, but in many of these right-wing extremist groups also welcomes non-white folks as long as they support certain interests. It goes back to that first conversation we were talking about, about how we identify nationalism, and there's kind of these two different strains that exist. Yep. And yet they they play off each other and are ambiguous enough and amorphous enough that they're willing to absorb one if it's for the long-term good.
0: It, it's so dangerous. All of it is so dangerous. The, the concept itself of nationalism and being exclusive within a with of people within your own country's borders
1: yeah for the united states intertwined in the nationalism that reflects like make america great again is also the support for other western countries in their ability to defend their values because their quote-unquote values align with ours reflecting the imperialist white hegemony of the past several hundred years so like the fact that so many of these right-wing groups support boris johnson Despite, like, didn't we fucking fight them in a war, like, for our independence, yet now you're supporting their leadership? Like, that points to the fact that there's this weird, ambiguous territory that white nationalism and nationalism and Christianity place, where, like, we talk about, like, on the left, the idea of, like, intersectionality, where you have different perspectives on the hierarchies that exist within our culture of, like, race and gender and all these other things, it almost flips on its head for power groups. So these hegemonic groups that are white, Christian, uh, whatever, that they they can also use those layers and kind of reach across those layers where, again, somebody that's, like, all about make America great again then also supports Boris Johnson, who's pretty much make England great again, which means, like, colonizing the U.S. again. It's, like, a very weird... it doesn't make sense to me at least
0: having the conversation now um maybe that does have to do with christianity coming into play in identity where people will say they're christians and they pick and choose which part of christianity they want to observe and follow um you know whatever best aligns with whatever they want during the day and then they discard everything else so we're seeing that same mentality come over into politics and and other things in life right
1: yeah and in this weird way, we're seeing that international solidarity of uh, white identity, whatever that means for those different people play out in the same way that we're seeing it in the Arab world. And I think it recontextualizes a lot of this conversation of how we could see it happen here. Like that's just kind of something, I guess, to kind of keep on the back burner in these conversations. So having said that, I want to also emphasize that there is no doubt that however much they disagree among themselves, which they obviously do, All the rebels regard the conflict in Syria as fundamentally a religious issue first and not a democratic issue. Which, again, goes back to this conversation we just had about these Republicans.
0: Identity. National identity.
1: Yeah, I like democracy when it's what I got. Uh, Otherwise, I don't like it. So, particularly for the native rebels, as I've pointed out, the religious issue is overlaid by ethnic complexities and is accelerated by economic and ecological collapse. Unfortunately, a lot of people regard the Syrian war as a fight between the forces of freedom and tyranny, and it's really not that simple. If the opponents of the regime are fighting for some form of democracy, they really haven't vocalized their concern about the lack of democracy, or at least I can't seem to find any, just simply that their lack of perspective isn't being the voice in that authoritarian government, which again, I like looking at what the Republicans just pulled. Like I said at the beginning of this episode, it doesn't really matter if Trump wins at this point or is able to pull it off, but the precedent has been set for that conversation that we're having now, uh, which is very disconcerting. As in other guerrilla wars, the rebels have therefore split into a bewildering array of groups, and they have fought one another over territory, access to arms, leadership, and division of spoils as bitterly as they have fought their proclaimed enemy. This fracturing despite making them weaker as individual groups, has made them impossible to defeat. But also, it also means that they're incapable of governing on a national scale. So the point is that they're, it's just fucked. The strongest groups out of these organizations have learned to build mutual aid networks and communities, delivering things like food and water to towns, and in response, receiving the support of the people and places to hide. At this point, the United States, these different groups don't really show any interest in doing that. If you guys remember, during the California wildfires, while the, the protesters, Antifa, and all those different organizations that were involved over there, spent time getting water to people, getting food and resources to people, the organized militias of 3% and the Patriot Front and all these other groups, uh, instead decided that it was more important to defend private property, but didn't really do anything to help people and actually caused a lot of people to, to be delayed in trying to escape and be safe risking people's lives so like i mean not that you would expect anything else from those assholes but like it speaks to the fact that they're not really concerned with people uh but property now i want to go back to that first data i was just talking to you about like a few minutes ago with that 0.9 percent and it's going to get a little bit like
0: uncomfortable we're going to make it real yeah we're going to make it real real
1: yeah so just again i want to reflect back on the united states model and why Syria is a useful example to look at a worst case scenario and i mean absolute worst case scenario here.
0: Yeah, just go back and look at pictures of Syria from 2011 to 2015 and that's what that's what we mean by worst case. Yeah. It's, I don't think it's going to come to that again. Uh Syria was, you know, aerial bombed to back to the stone age clearly. Um we've been saying, you know, the outside any outside influence that comes in isn't most likely isn't going to do that to the US, but they are still going to want their exports. But I just, after doing the research on this, I just, I really feel for the Syrian people who are still trying to live there and just tr- tr- continue their day-to-day life.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I preface this whole episode with the fact that this isn't really a, 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 history doesn't ever repeat itself. It just exists as like a, almost like a, a memory in its new uh, form. And that's kind of what I want to keep in mind, is that like we can learn from these things without expecting the same exact results. So during the peak of this Civil War, Secretary of State John Kerry had claimed that only a portion of the rebels, and the number he used was between 15 and 25 percent, are what he calls bad guys. But observers on the scene pointed out this means that there are about 15 to 25,000 bad guys, and they're very bad indeed. For perspective, that is 1 15th of a percent of the population. Uh, in terms of the United States, we are looking at per- potentially 500,000 of these quote unquote bad guys, as he describes them. And do we think that figure is really possible? I'm not really sure. But remember that 9 tenths of 1% that already subscribed to some kind of hate group ideology? That's 600% of the figure of those bad guys. That is about 3 million of those bad guys if they were to actually fulfill the hate groups that they subscribe to. And that's the data from the traditionally, quote-unquote, less likely to be racist, college-educated citizens. I know there's a lot we can say about those assumptions, but even if that nine-tenths figure holds across both college-educated and non-college-educated, and if only one-sixth of those folks become radicalized as the country devolves into factionalism, It's not hard to see the seeds of the United States has sown overseas has come home. In the massacres carried out and investigated by Human Rights Watch, the perpetrators were not just foreign fighters but also native Syrians. In one video, a rebel commander is seen eating the heart of a soldier he had just killed. In another, a group of rebels murder captive soldiers who are bound and lying face down in the ground. Another group in the in the collection had recently carried out an attack on an old, established, and peaceful Christian community. These are not isolated attacks. Senior rebels have publicly threatened to carry out a genocide of the country's main ethnic and religious minorities, the Alawis. Scenes being enacted in Syria today recall the massacres and tortures of the War of Religion in 16th and 17th century Europe. The British journalist Jonathan Steele was told by the commander of a village defense to force, neither a government soldier nor a rebel, just a peacekeeper, that he saw the results of an attack including, in quote, a baby's head hanging from a tree. There was a woman's body which had been sliced in half from head to toe, and each half was hanging from separate apple trees, End quote. It is difficult to even to imagine the well of hatred exemplified by such scenes. If the current stalemate continues, Syria will remain effectively, in quote, balkanized that is, split into pieces, as it was when the French invaded the country in 1920. Today, and perhaps into the future, something like two-thirds of the country, including its only major earner, the oil and gas industry, is likely to remain in rebel hands, or at least not under the control of the central government. More significantly, rebel-held areas will almost certainly be constituted as a fundamentalist Islamic society, with the insurgents already call a caliphate, perhaps an alliance with the northwestern portions of Iraq. Ideologically driven and believing itself to be under siege, which it almost certainly will be, the caliphate will seek to defend itself with the, unquote, weapon of the weak, terrorism. I don't know what to say after that.
0: Yeah, that's the the heavy part of the episode that just hits hard. Um, This is what I was saying earlier. It's not just state versus the people. It's state versus the people versus the people versus the people. And I think that's one parallel that we would see in the United States in the event of collapse. It's not going to be a two-sided war like the first American Civil War where it's blue versus gray. It's sort of going to be an every man for himself. And in the event of a power vacuum where the state collapses, you're going to see all of these different factions fighting for the throne.
1: Yeah. And what frightens me mostly and is the willingness of so many on the right at least on the internet and obviously it's the internet so like how much of it can you take it's seriously World years, yeah it. but their willingness and openness to to commit similar crimes and the the problem is that not is it, it's leaking from the internet is i guess the best way to describe it mm-hmm. like you're seeing these people like was that kid's name kyle rittenhouse or whatever i can't remember the kid who showed up in kenosha and shot at a protester who was, like, yelling at him. These kids that are, like, 17, 18, that get sucked into this world on, like, 4chan and 8chan and whatever fucking place there are now, because I'm old and I don't know that stuff. But, like, they they get absorbed into it, and they're totally they're radicalized in a different way than these other places where they've never seen or been exposed to violence. And while most of them won't commit anything, all it takes is a handful to light that match. And you've got a whole bunch of people in this country that are seasoned veterans that our military inculcates into this mentality of everyone that's not American is bad. And that's dangerous for a lot of reasons. Because, again, to go back to the first conversation we had in this episode is how do we define American? But Or at least how do these people define American? It's this really ambiguous, amorphous thing where... Some of us are included, and some of us aren't, and some of us, it's because of race, and some of us, we can see past race. So it's, it's a really dangerous situation where you can see those groups splinter off very easily.
0: I could see that. I don't think we have to worry about any vets being radicalized like that. I, I won't say any, but I think the percentage would be smaller than you think. I think it's a lot of the people who were too afraid to actually join the armed services are the ones that have something to prove.
1: I mean those people are definitely a problem but I think like I, I think about some kids that I I know from high school and they they wanted to go to war to kill somebody that's the reason they signed up for the military. Sure they
0: probably became police officers. Yeah probably.
1: The point is that like it, it, there's a, a massive amount of problems and I think people uh, at least what I want to point out with this whole conversation is if if the metrics for what it takes to radicalize that were in Syria were to happen here even if it was at half of that rate
0: the numbers would be staggering the,
1: num- the numbers would be absolutely staggering and i don't think people understand what that means and how that can snowball so quickly you know it gets more complicated when you start adding international players to those conversations
0: well so. we're seeing it now we're seeing the economy is changing not necessarily for the better when food and water are scarce, we'll have all of the things in play where <laughs> a civil war, people are hungry and angry. I'm I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I'm saying all the pieces are in place. That's why sure. we're taking a look at, you know, this one instance in history and just drawing those parallels here. Yeah,
1: there's a lot of parallels for Syria and not obviously nothing. Like I said, history doesn't repeat itself in the sense of like literal. Right. But, there, you know, you should be looking for those common threads that exist and saying, okay, are, are those threads strong enough for us to see something similar be created? And in this case, I think in the right conditions, it can. And the last thing I want to talk about is the, the refugee crisis caused by the Syrian civil war, and what that would look like in the United States. Because again, I, I don't think people really comprehend
0: the numbers. the
1: numbers. Today in Syria, a third of the population is displaced, and half of those are still within the country. The rich and the upper middle class left, while the rest are packed in refugee camps. For context, there are 330 million citizens in the United States. So imagine if 55 million Americans fled overseas and another 55 million were packed into refugee camps. For context, that would cause a 300% increase in refugees globally. And, brace yourself, a 2,000% increase in residents of refugee camps. Obviously there's no amount of aid to tackle that system. And things start to collapse very quickly if that's the conditions.
0: Right. And so that's what we're talking about is the numbers. The the world can't handle that many refugees at one time. There's not enough aid yeah, coming and- from any one place or even a collective group of places that would handle those numbers, a two thousand percent increase in, in camps for bodies. Like think about the sanitation nightmare that would be. Yeah. like it's insane.
1: Yeah, it's like it's insurmountable to think about like how to feed those people, uh, those, and not even just feed those people, but like Keep the fact getting sick, the fact that uh, you've now got one hundred ten million people not working, right. and feeding those people, right. So I don't think it's really hard to objectively see the similarities in both the state of Syria in twenty eleven and today. And obviously, like we said, nothing will ever exactly be the same. But there's no shortage of evidence. That the United States could easily balkanize. We see that informally already taking place now, where much of the coast has been relegated by the country as quote-unquote not really American, and even internally within states the urban versus rural divide is becoming more and more extreme. As small farmers continue to get kicked off their farms, and monolith organizations take control of all aspects of the market, and costs of living continue to skyrocket, more than half of people cannot currently afford to miss a paycheck, and during the pandemic, nearly half of residents are in the early stages of facing eviction, while we have a strongman president attempting to delegitimize the election. Further, the Trump family and their accomplices have taken various ambiguous roles within the government to enrich themselves, while he refused to disown and encourages often the actions of radicals who want America to reflect their own vision of society instead of a democratic vision of society. The writing is on the wall, and there are a million pieces to the puzzle that haven't been put in place yet. My intent with this wasn't to scare you or to glorify collapse or some kind of fetishization that we're going to make a better world that I envision is better, but rather to articulate based on historical evidence what we could be in for and what I think would be a worst-case scenario. This doesn't mean this will happen or that I'm predicting that this will happen, but this could happen. I was planning on making this episode not just an analysis of what's happened in Syria and how it compares to the United States, but I wanted to cover some highlights of what daily life currently looks like for folks that aren't refugees. I think there's a lot of coverage out there what refugee camps look like and with the increased projected base uh, based on the American collapse. It's hard to imagine that refugee camps would look the same if there was collapse in the United States because of its massive population. However, even when I was writing this, I knew this was going to be one of our longest episodes yet, so if this is something that interests you, please let us know, and I I would definitely like to go a little bit deeper into what the daily life looks like in this type of a region. Hopefully, you've enjoyed this episode, and even if you don't like the actual information of the show, and we're hoping to follow this up with a best-case collapse scenario, looking towards the Troubles in Northern Ireland.
0: He said best case. (laughs)
1: Yes. Best so, case. It
0: sounds so terrible.
1: If you're listening to this, you're worried about collapse. So, uh, and it, like, let's be honest: like, no country lives forever. At some point, America is going to collapse. It's just dumb luck whether or not we're here when it happens. And unfortunately, I think we might be. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, we will. I hope I'm wrong, but shit is not looking good, like on all fronts. Yeah, so, and if
0: you don't believe us, just go buy some water futures.
1: Yeah, you fucking capitalist. So as we wrap up here. Uh, We'd also like to remind you that if you are using iTunes, please give us a review. So more folks find the podcast and hopefully join us on this project. And hopefully if you're listening at this right now, probably like an hour and a half into the episode, uh, you must find it kind of interesting. So please give us a review.
0: Review us. Give us five stars. We're great.
1: Yeah, they're incredibly useful in helping us both get ranked higher in algorithms used by iTunes meaning more listeners, which also gives us the opportunity to start drawing in more folks for interviews, which we would both love to do, and I think you guys would benefit from as well. We actually will be having historian and comedian Nash Flynn on our next episode, and we're excited about the new perspective she will bring to the conversation. We've been growing fairly consistently, and that's pretty much entirely to the work you do by giving us reviews, telling other folks about us, and following us on Instagram, and that's awesome. We'd like to think what we're doing is unique and valuable, and our hope is that we can present the current challenges facing the planet in a new light that gives us hope and a sense of liberation through understanding how we can individually and collectively make meaningful change. Until then, this is Andy. And Elliot. And this is the Poor Almanac.
0: Later turds.